Matthew 16, verses 13 to 23. We are going to look at Matthew one last time before we take a break for the next couple months this summer. And prepare yourself because we're going to be looking at Judges, the book of Judges, for the next eight weeks and uh, see what God has to say to us there. Um, I'm probably scareder than you are, so. Um, but plan on coming because God wants to talk to us and speak to us through it. Um, but we're going to look at this, this passage in Matthew 16, where it's, it's somewhat of a climax in the book of Matthew. Um, because up until this point, nobody has been getting who Jesus is at all. Everybody's been completely missing the point for the most part. I mean, the people who have been following him and flocking to him and gathering around him, they haven't been getting it. The people who are trying to, to take Jesus down have not been getting it either. And Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, were, were hardly getting it themselves. I mean, basically, kind of uh, one of the best moments where they started to maybe kind of get it is when Jesus calmed the, the seas, you know, and they were like, who is this guy, you know? That's kind of the best that they had gotten to up until this point. Um, and then Jesus asks who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what he says here. And this is, you know, the, the point where, you know, the disciples finally get who is Jesus really? They really get who he is. And uh, that begs the question, do you know who Jesus is? You know, if all these people had trouble getting it, I imagine we have trouble getting it as well. If he were to ask you today, who do you say I am? Do you think that he would approve of your answer? <laughs> do you think he would like your answer? So listen to God's word as I read from Matthew 16, verses 13 to 23. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned, to turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see your word clearly, that your spirit would work in our hearts, and that we would see Jesus more clearly than we've ever seen him before. And that as we behold Jesus, that we would be changed because that is what each and every one of us needs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Didi boy, 
Pefster, big guy, psycho. Chester Wamschlowski, Ridgy, snake, dusty, daddy, Papa Jay, Mr. Jeff. These are a sampling of the names I've gone by in my lifetime. <laughs> Just a sampling. Names are important. The more names you know of a person, you know, the more nicknames, the more names you know about them, probably the better you know them. Okay, so feel free to ask me about any of those nicknames after the service if you want. What's that? No, I said Papa Jay. <laughs> Not Dr. Jay. Um, the more names you know about a person, the better you know them, you could argue. Also, on the flip side, if you don't know a person's name, you would argue you don't know that person really at all. I, I think I've shared this story before, but when I was a sophomore in college, I met this girl. I think we were out at a party or something. I met her and was introduced to her. And then I saw her the next week. I was like walking around campus and I was walking with some friends. I was in a rush to get to class and she was walking the other way. And I say, you know, I waved to her. I said, hi. And she's like, hey, Steve. And we were like past each other before I could be like, that's not my name. And then like the next, like a few days later, I was like engrossed in a serious conversation with somebody and she walked by and she's like, hey, Steve. And I was like, I can't, I'm like talking to this person. I can't, I couldn't correct her then either. And so at, at that point, it was like too awkward the next time I saw her to really confront her and be like, look, my name's not Steve. And so she called me Steve for three years. <laughs> Every time I saw her, hey, Steve, the people that were with me were like, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. And you know, it didn't really matter because we never really interacted other than just walking by each other. And, and obviously, she did not know me. She just thought my name was Steve. Occasionally, I would like maybe see her working out in the gym and we'd talk about what our friends were doing for the weekend, but there was, you know, it was fine. She could call me Steve and that's fine. But because she didn't, she didn't, I don't remember her name. <laughs> but I didn't know her either. I did know her name at the time. At least I thought I knew her name. Who knows? We could have been calling each other the wrong name the whole time. But as I mentioned, until this point in Matthew, no one has been grasping who Jesus is at this point, right? The people who have been following him have been getting it wrong. The people who are out to get him were getting it wrong. His disciples were getting it wrong. And then finally, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter nails it. Ding, 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 ding. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is like, finally, Someone! Peter gives him the answer. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as I, as I look at this passage, you know, Peter comes up with a couple names of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But as I, as I looked at these verses, as I read the rest of the passage, I was like, you know, there's, there's, there's a few more names in here that you could use to describe Jesus as well. And so I'm going to, you know, Thank me. I'm not going to do a thousand names like we just sang. That would be hard to get through. But we are going to do seven, okay? It's a seven-point sermon. Buckle up. <laughs> Hopefully we won't need a bathroom break. But, um, so I want to just look at seven names of Jesus, seven ways that you can describe Jesus from this passage, okay? Hopefully to help us to know him better and to understand what it means to respond to him, Okay? So the first name that I see here, um, and I, I would say it's promise fulfiller, promise fulfiller. And, and I think that's much of what is wrapped up in the idea of Christ, the fact that Peter calls him Christ, 
that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of God's promises. That's, that's, I think that's what the title Christ is about. The, the word Christ is, is basically the same term for the, the Hebrew idea is Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God had promised would come. Ever since the beginning of creation, God made people. And, and ever since Adam and Eve first sinned, God began to promise, make promises. He, 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 began, he said, I'm going to promise. I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to send somebody, my chosen one, who's going to come and he's going to make everything right. He's going to come and he's going to rescue you. He's going to come and save you from your sin and all of the, the repercussions of your sin. And, and throughout the Old Testament, there's more and more and more and more promises. God just continues to make promise after promise after promise that this chosen one would come, the Messiah would come, the Christ would come, and he would be the answer. He would be the answer to all that, that everyone, ever since sin broke everything, that all of us were longing for. You know, uh, a guy named Blaise Pascal, if you've heard of him, he's a famous mathematician and philosopher from the 17th century. He, he said something like, every single human being has a God-shaped vacuum inside of them that nothing in creation will fill other than God. And, and so throughout the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to promise to send the Christ to come, and he's going to be the one that fills that vacuum. He's the one that, that's going to come and fulfill all of your longings for life, and purpose, and meaning. And that's going to be the Christ. And, and so that's, that's what one of the things that Peter is communicating when he says, you are the Christ. You are the one that was promised. You are the one that God said would come and meet us in the midst of all that we need, all of our longings. You know, we, we all spend so much of our lives trying to fill them, fill the, the void in our hearts, the vacuum in our hearts with all sorts of things. But what Peter points out here is that it's only Jesus that can do that. Only Jesus can do that. He is the promise fulfiller. The second name is that he is the God revealer. The God revealer. And, and I, I, I want to uh, point your attention to the second part of what Peter says here, where he says, you are the son of the living God. You're the son of the living God. One of the things we say we're pursuing here at Hope Church is that we're pursuing a community in which people are encountering the real God. That means that we really believe that God exists. He's not just some kind of figment of our imagination. He's not some kind of nice philosophical theory that makes us feel better about life, but he's real, and he is alive, and we can actually see evidence of him working in this world and in our lives, and, and we should expect that, and we should be able to interact with him and talk with him and listen to him and respond to him in real practical ways in our daily lives. He's alive and he is real. That's what we are pursuing. Lives that respond to a, a real God who is alive. In, in the Old Testament, the, the, this idea of living God is often brought up by the prophets. The prophets would often refer to God as the living God and they would contrast him with the idols of the nations around them, the gods that they worshipped, the gods with a little g that they worshipped. And, and basically, it was, he was talking about these, these statues that, that the other nations would make out of stone and wood, and they would worship these things. And the prophets would often say, no, these guys, you know, they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They are not alive. They are powerless. But our God, the God of the Israelites, he is alive. He is the living God. He is real. And we can actually 
relate to him, live in relationship to him. We can respond to him. We can experience what it means to be loved by him. And we can see him do things, incredible things. And, and so when, when Peter refers to Jesus as the son of the living God, what he's saying is that you, Jesus, you are the one that helps us to know that God is real and alive. As we look at you, we can know that God is real and alive and present. If you are uncertain about whether God is real, about whether you can really interact with him and know him, then look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the one who reveals that God is, is real and alive and actually interacts. He, he came into our world to interact with us, to love people in practical ways, to put his arm around them, to heal them, to show compassion, to rebuke them at times. Right? We can know that God is real and alive and that we can interact with him because of Jesus, that he really lived and walked this earth and showed us what God is really like The third name that I want to focus on is that Jesus is the identity maker. He's the identity maker. Um, After Peter makes his confession of Jesus, Jesus then says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18, he says this, And I tell you, you are Peter. Now Peter... Sounds like the the word for rock, okay? So Peter means rock. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. What is Jesus doing when he says that to Peter? What does Jesus mean when he says, Peter, you are the rock, or this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, throughout history, there have been different ideas of what Jesus actually means when he says this. The Catholic Church would say that this is kind of the groundwork, this is the proof text, the the, the place that says um, Jesus designates Peter as the first pope. And because of this, we know that we should always have a pope who authoritatively is in charge of the church and speaks for God and, and, and can authoritatively make decisions for the church and things like that. Honestly, as I read this, I think you have to make jump and jump and jump to, to, to actually get there from this statement of Jesus. I do not think that this proves that there should be a pope at all. And neither did the the reformers, the people who broke away from the Catholic Church hundreds of years ago. However, those people, the reformers, the people who, who protested the Catholic Church, then took this and they reacted to a lot that happened in the Catholic Church. And they were like, okay, you say that this means we should have a pope. This can't mean that. Obviously, this can't mean that. So, so they were very careful to say, well, when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, what Jesus is talking about, he's not referring to Peter. He's referring to Peter's statement that Jesus is the Christ. So when Jesus says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, Jesus is actually talking about the statement that he is the Christ. That's what the reformers would say. A lot of the reformers, a lot of the Protestant people would say that. A lot of people say that today, and I've learned that from many people and taught that as well. And, and I've just kind of tried to finally get honest with myself, and I've looked at this passage, and I was like, I have trouble getting there as well, that Jesus is actually talking about Peter's statement. I think as I plainly read this, when Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. I think Jesus is talking about Peter. He's calling Peter a rock. I think that's what Jesus is doing. But the ironic thing, as you think about Peter, 
is that he's anything but a rock. You know, as you continue reading in this passage, later on, Jesus has to rebuke Peter, right? When Peter starts being like, no, Jesus, you're not going to die. That's never going to happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, you are a hindrance to me. If you you have a Bible, there's a footnote in there. The the word for hindrance actually means stumbling stone. (laughs) Peter, you're a rock. But yeah, the reality is Peter's a stumbling rock. He's, he's a stumbling stone. He, he's, not, he's not a solid rock that the church is going to be built on. You know, as you look at Peter, he's the guy who, who in, in, you know, impetuously jumps out of the boat and walks on the water, but then starts sinking because he doubts. He's the guy who claims that he's going to never, never deny Jesus. And then he denies him almost immediately, three times. Peter is anything but a rock, and yet Jesus calls him what he isn't. Jesus calls him something strong and beautiful and glorious, even though he isn't. And and Jesus saying, you're Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, I think Jesus is, is doing what the gospel does. It calls sinners what we are not, beloved children of God. Like, we, we don't deserve to be beloved, and yet he calls us beloved. Does that make sense? That is what Jesus is constantly doing. He, he is speaking into us an identity that we need to believe about ourselves because of what he makes true. Peter is going to be a rock because Jesus is going to make him into one. Peter needs to listen to Jesus calling him a rock and, and take ownership of that. Let, let that be his identity. And that is what becomes his identity later in the church as after Jesus rises from the dead. What, Peter is absolutely a rock as he proclaims the gospel and, and is even willing to die for who Jesus is and what he did, right? And, and I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's making Peter's identity. And I think that's what we need to allow Jesus to do as well. I, we, we have so many places that we get our identity from. All of us are, are trying to suck our identity from all sorts of different places in our lives. You know, a lot of us get it from the things that we accomplish, from the things that we do in our, in our jobs, 40 to 50 hours a week and more. Um, some of us get it from the, the people that we hang around with or the clothes that we wear, you know, or the image that we curate and cultivate on social media. We try to get our identity from all sorts of places. Some places we, we get our identity, we don't want it, but we get our identity from... from you know, things that have happened in our life that, that, you know, we're ashamed of. And those things, you know, make our identity. And we need to get in the habit of listening to Jesus tell us who we are. That's what we need to do. We need to get in the habit of listening to what Jesus says about us. You are beloved, even though it doesn't feel like we're very lovable. You are victorious, you know, He calls us victors. Paul refers to us as victors in Romans. I don't feel like a victor a lot of the time. But we need to listen to what Jesus says about us is true and let him create our identity, anchor our identity in what he says. Okay, I know we're kind of going slow. We're only on three. But I'm going to try to work through the next next, four kind of quickly. The fourth name is, is community builder. You know, he says, I will build my church on this rock. I will build my church Jesus is going to be the one who builds the church. The word for church is ekklesia in the Greek, and it just means called out ones. It's people who are called out from the world to be unique and different. And what is supposed to characterize this church that Jesus is building? He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word for hell is Hades. And, and 
When we hear that, I think a lot of us think of, you know, hell is the place where, where the devil and all of his allies are fighting against God. But the reality is, is that I think that the idea here is the gates of Hades is just as simply referring what the people would hear, at, hear that as the place of the dead, generally speaking. And so when he says the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, the gates of the, of the dead will not prevail against it, what he's saying is that I'm building a community of people that are, I'm calling out from the world and they are going to be distinct because they're going to be marked by life, not by death. They're going to be marked by life and not by death. Their relationships are going to be marked by life and not by death. There's going to be life in the way that they live and respond to life and interact with one another. It's, I, I, it's kind of like, many of you guys have probably seen the word, is it Wizard of Oz, right? How does the movie The Wizard of Oz start out? It starts out in black and white. It's all in black and white, right? And then the tornado comes, and, and she's whisked away to Oz, and then when she wakes up in Oz, what happens? Everything is in color. And I think that's the sort of experience people should have as they walk in to this church community on Sunday mornings. That they're walking out of a world that is black and white into a world that is full of color, where they see people loving one another in a way that is full of color, that is unique and distinct from the rest of the world that they see where they see people forgiving one another and bearing with one another and carrying one another. You know? That's what people should see when we are just interacting with each other out in the world. Like last night, we had an awesome time here, those of us who showed up for the family fun night, you know? And, and a guy just happened to be walking by with his dog. And hopefully what he saw as he interacted with us is color everywhere in the way that we listen to him and talk to him and scratch the head of his dog cared about him, you know? Jesus is calling us. He's, he's making us. He's building us into a community that is full of life rather than death. Jesus is also the key giver. He says that he will give the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Again, another challenging, challenging verse. Challenging to do these, these verses in a seven-point sermon, I realize. He seems to give... Um, what, what does he give Peter? He gives him the keys. I mean, when you think about, you know, what do you give the keys to? Sometimes you give, if you have kids, when they get their driver's license, you give them the keys to the car. It's kind of a scary moment, right? You're giving them power. You're giving them, you know, responsibility. Um, and so what is Jesus doing when he gives Peter the keys of the kingdom? I would, I would argue that he doesn't just give it to Peter. He gives it to, to the disciples. I think he gives them to us as well. He gives the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, what I think he's saying here, it, it's, it's kind of hard, like the, the translation. Again, if you have a Bible that, that has footnotes, there's probably a footnote in here about how the, the tenses of the verbs here are translated, but, but literally, in the Greek, what it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Like So whatever you bind or loose on earth, what, what's happening is you're, you're, you're recognizing things that have already been done in heaven. They're in the condition of being done in heaven. So things are loosed and bound in heaven. And what he's saying to Peter, you, you're, you have an opportunity to acknowledge what is true already. Okay? And, it, and again, it's all tied. This is, Jesus is saying this all after Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. It's all tied to Peter's proclamation of Jesus as the Christ. 
And so I think what he's doing here is he's not giving Peter the authority to, to make you know, authoritative pronouncements necessarily, but what he's doing is he's, giving, he's, he's inviting Peter to the privilege of participating in ministry with Jesus, to, to being Jesus' instrument of ministry, as he proclaims the gospel, as he proclaims Jesus Christ, as people respond to that proclamation, Peter will be able to acknowledge whether they have been bound or loosed in heaven. I know that's, that's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp. But I think the main general point that I want to get across here is, is the way that Jesus, I mentioned last week how Jesus, uh, I think it was last week, where, where Peter walks on the water and, and, and Jesus didn't hoard his power to himself, but he actually shares it with Peter, Right? And here, and I think we have a similar thing here where, where Jesus doesn't hoard his ministry to himself, but he invites Peter and he invites us to participate in his ministry. You know? As scary as that, that could be for him, because we're going to get it wrong all the time. And yet he invites us to be used by him to proclaim that he is the Christ and to see people be set free and to be able to say, yes, you are free. You have been set free because of the work of Jesus. He's the key giver. Um, but I think what is, what is crucial to accept about Jesus is that he's the pain sufferer, right? And that's where Peter had a little trouble accepting that, right? Jesus says to Peter, um, or, he, or he says to them all, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And, and Peter hears that, and he's like, Jesus, no. I just got the answer right, Jesus. And now you're telling me you're going to die? You, the Christ, the Son of the living God? How can that be possible? That's not right. There's no way you should have to suffer. You are the one who should be sitting on a throne victorious. And Jesus says, no. No, Peter. Guys, this is the whole point. This is the point. This is why I came. I came to die, to suffer and to die. And later on, Peter puts it this way in, in 1 Peter 3. He says, uh, um, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Peter got it eventually. The only way for us to, to know God and, and come to God is through the suffering of Jesus, through the fact that Jesus died on a cross to pay for our sin so that we could be forgiven. That is the only way we can know God and be set free and have life. That is the only way where our longings for all sorts of things in life, joy and meaning and purpose, that's the only way for those things to actually be filled and met is through the death of Jesus. And so it has to be Jesus is the pain sufferer. We need to accept him, receive him as that for us, that he suffered for us so that we could be forgiven and loved. And, and it also is a warning for us, you know, as we think about following Jesus if he's going to be the pain sufferer, then we have to be willing to recognize that we are going to suffer as well. That uh, that's part of life, of following Jesus. Um, life isn't absolutely perfect and painless all the time. 
And we need to accept that as we follow him, as we trust in him. He is the pain sufferer for us. Lastly, Jesus is the, the, as the song we sang earlier, I can't put it better than Phil Wickham did, did in that song. He's the death defeater. He's the death defeater. In verse 21, what Peter missed, you know, Peter hears Jesus say that uh, he's going to have to suffer and be killed, and suddenly Peter just stops listening. Did you notice that? <laughs> he just like consumed with his, you know, being focused on the fact that Jesus is going to suffer. He stops listening to what Jesus says next. Because the next phrase that Jesus says, he says, and on the third day, he's going to be raised. If only Peter would have just hung in there for just a few more seconds, you know? Yeah, Jesus is going to suffer, but he's going to conquer death. He's going to rise from the dead. At all of the effects of sin and the brokenness of this world, Jesus is going to reverse it. It's only through Jesus that we can have a hope of having everything in this world that is broken reversed. It's only in Jesus that we have hope of, of the pain that we experience being eradicated one day. It's only in Jesus that we have the hope that, uh, that we don't have to fear death, but that because he has risen, we will live forever with him. He is the death defeater. And I think it, it can be really easy for us like Peter, you know, Peter just suddenly, like as Jesus was talking about his suffering, Peter just kind of zeroed in on that, on the pain, because he didn't want to face it. He didn't want to accept it. For us, it's very easy as we live our lives. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of stuff that is uncomfortable and frustrating and discouraging. There's a lot of pain. There are, there's a lot of loss that we all experience. And it is so easy for us to just fixate on that. And to miss this promise of Jesus. To miss the work of Jesus. The miraculous thing that he does. The unbelievable thing that he does. His power that is beyond anything we can imagine. It's easy for us to just kind of be preoccupied with, with all that is broken in our lives and in this world. Whether it's, whether it's your, your, your frustrating work. Or your just intense loneliness. Or the brokenness of your body, your, your pain, your, your, your illness that you've been facing, or, or the pain that a, fr a friend or a family member is going through. It can be so easy to just fixate on that and to miss that Jesus invites us to believe what is unbelievable, to believe that he has power over it all, and he can work in the midst of it all. He can work miracles to, to set us free from things that are... That are that, that we feel are breaking us, but he can also set work miracles in us to enable us to endure it and even draw closer to it in, in the midst of it. He's the death defeater. The one in whom he, he invites us to believe what is unbelievable. And we need to train ourselves to get in the habit of believing that he can do more than we can ever imagine. He can do more than we can ever imagine. As we think about people that we care about that are facing and struggling through things that we don't know how we can help them, Jesus can do what is unimaginable and unbelievable. He's the death defeater. Well, to know the names of Jesus is to know him. To know the names of Jesus is to know him. But as I was reading this passage, I was like, man, there's actually names in here that I'm going to have to skip over or else we're going to be here all day, you know? I mean, there's question asker, right? 
there's question asker, there's, uh, there's fame denier. You know, Jesus tells his disciples, you know, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. There's fame denier. There's a friend rebuker. There's, there's all sorts of names in here. They're, they're endless, really. As you continue to look at Jesus, they're endless. We sang the song, A Thousand Names, right? There's not just a thousand names of Jesus. There's even more. None of us can ever fully comprehend all of the names of Jesus because we can't fully comprehend him. He's beyond what any of us can truly understand. And yet he invites us to know him. The thing that, that, that we can take comfort in, the thing that we can take comfort in is that Jesus is under no mistake about your name. He's not confused about what your name is. You know, he's not going to call you Steve if your name is Jeff for your entire life. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he invites you to know him, to believe in him, and to trust him today. And to find that all of your longings, all of the, the, the emptiness in your, in your life, any of the emptiness, it is met in him. It is met in him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to know Jesus better today. I know that we can only probably, you know, get the tip of the iceberg, but, but the tip of the iceberg is, is still enough for us. The grace of Jesus is sufficient for our every need. And so just show us just a little bit more. Father, we pray that you would help us um, as we pursue the knowledge of Jesus, that you would grow us, that you would reveal yourself to us because we can't do it apart from you working as Peter couldn't. But we pray that you would reveal yourself to us and that we would find in you all that we could ever want or need. We thank you for the, for the work that you have done for us to pay for our sin. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we now have an opportunity to meet Jesus at the Lord's table. And if you did not pick up the communion elements on your way in,